Amen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 to 28. Matthew 16, 21 to 28 is where we're going to be this morning. Aaron Ralston is a mechanical engineer by trade. He's really no one special, at least, by trade, and especially before April 26, 2003. It was on that date that he was canyoneering by himself uh, in Blue John Canyon in southeastern Utah when he unwittingly dislodged a boulder and it pinned his right wrist to the side of the canyon wall. With no way to escape, he sat there pinned to this wall for five days. He lost 40 pounds. When it seemed like all hope was lost, his only option was to break his arm and separate it from his body in order to get free. Making a, a tourniquet of his camelback tubes, he hiked to safety where four hours later, he was rescued. This morning, Peter and the disciples are going to be confronted by Jesus with a difficult question. And it's actually us that is confronted as well as we read this text. Confronted with the same difficult question. What would you be willing to lose in order to save your own life? What would you be willing to lose in order to save your own life? Look with me at Matthew chapter 16, 21 to 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and uh, turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Then Jesus told his disciples, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me." For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our congregation, I pray for myself as we hear these words from your text. that this wouldn't fall on deaf ears. That you would open our ears to what you have to say to us. Open our eyes that we can see the text and open our heart that we can apply it to our lives. 
I pray that for myself and for everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of Jesus' teaching in the book of Matthew is summarized in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. And I've told you before that the citizen of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus shows to us at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5, what we typically refer to as the Beatitudes, that citizen of the kingdom of heaven that he describes there is modeled for us throughout the gospel by various people that come onto the scene that represent people of great faith. We see it in the centurion. We see it in the woman who's hemorrhaging. We see it in many people around, uh, around uh, Galilee as Jesus does his ministry, many of which Jesus calls attention to to tell us, the reader and the disciples, that's the person that I'm talking about. But the one who models perfectly that citizenship that he describes there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus himself. Jesus himself perfectly models that kind of character. We also see in the the book of, of Matthew the opposite being modeled, don't we? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders all represent these people that are exactly the opposite of those poor in spirit, exactly the opposite of those who are meek and and who mourn over their own sin. But in addition to demonstrating for us the kind of character that God is molding his children into and making citizens of his kingdom into, Jesus is also adamant that in the process of doing all of that, there is a change in priorities for the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. There is a mindset that changes for the citizen of the kingdom of heaven in this process. Remember, Paul describes that in Romans 12, verse 2, when he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus also clues us into this mindset shift in Matthew chapter 6, when he begins teaching about the most basic needs There are some things that we all need, the most basic needs of human life. It's food and clothing. Everybody's going to seek out those things because we all have a natural desire to preserve our own life, so we're going to seek food and clothing. And what does Jesus say about that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25? He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then in verse 32, he says, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Well, well, then what is life about? If it's not preserving my own life, if it's not going after food and clothing, things that are going to help me live, what then is life about? And he says in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all of these things will be added to you. So as it turns out to Jesus, the most important thing in life, the thing that you should seek after, is the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. That's what that's what's life, about, life is about. In fact, if you do all these things, all the rest of the stuff will be added to you. It will take on a less important role. 
All the rest of life will, be, will come along. But first and foremost, it's about seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now, this is really strange because if I seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, my stomach is still going to rumble at 5 p.m. and 12 p.m. Or for some of us, 11 p.m. 11 a.m. I'm still going to get hungry. I still get cold in the winter, and I still want a really thick, good coat as I walk out into the winter. Well, Jesus knows that it's better to have a coat in the wintertime. He makes even mention of this in the gospel. He knows that it's, it's better to have a, a coat in the wintertime. And yet, he still says of first importance in your life is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In spite of all of those things. So it's with this in the background that we come to our text this morning where Jesus is exposing the fact that this way of thinking about the kingdom, of prioritizing the kingdom above even the most basic human needs, hasn't yet permeated the disciples' thinking. It hasn't really invaded their minds just yet. I want you to see a couple of things in this passage that Jesus is describing makes or constitutes the heart of a disciple, a heart of discipleship. What does it really cost a disciple to be a disciple? The first thing that I want you to see in our passage is that Jesus is setting the pattern for all who wish to be a disciple. Jesus is setting a pattern for all who wish to be a disciple. Now remember that in last week's text, Jesus has just told the disciples some important information about this church that he's going to establish, this kingdom that he's going to help build. And Peter confesses to him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is a tremendous insight that God reveals to him in that moment, and, and Jesus calls him out for that. But of equal importance to Peter's confession is what Jesus says about the church immediately following that. Remember what he says about the church? He says that the gates of hell, in other words, the gates of the grave, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against the church. So Jesus is telling his disciples that those who believe because of what Peter has just confessed... As Peter and the, the apostles go around preaching and people that come to faith and believe what they have confessed, that Christ is the Son of the living God. That those who confess that and believe that, the gates of the grave will not be able to hold them. In other words, they'll rise from the dead. That's what he's saying. As I mentioned last week, after the confession of Peter, Jesus begins to be much more open about his plans with the disciples. He tells them a lot more about what he's going to do and, and what kinds of things that are going to await him as he gets closer to Jerusalem. He's being very forthright with the disciples. But you'll notice at the end of last week's passage in verse 20, he's still not ready for them to tell everyone who he is. In verse 20, he tells them, you know, don't tell anyone else about what you've just, you've just said. This always seems weird to us. Why, why would that, that take place? Well, because in verse 21, he's beginning to tell them more about his mission, and it's very clear in our passage, they don't quite understand it. They don't quite have their mind wrapped around all that's going on. 
And so the disciples, they're going to have brief glimpses of their time with Jesus where they get exactly right who Jesus is. But then right after that, they expose themselves as not being fully aware of what exactly that means. We know you're the Christ, the son of the living God, but we don't have a clue as to what that means about your mission. In addition to that, the first one that's going to be there to declare that Christ has authority over all nations is whom? God the Father at the resurrection. Remember, Paul tells us in Romans 1, 4 and, uh, that he was declared to be the Son of God, that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So they don't understand that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. So in verse 21, Jesus begins to show his disciples what his being the Son of God actually means as far as his mission here on earth, his his mission in the here and now. And what does he say in verse 21? It's going to Jerusalem. It's suffering many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. It's being killed. And on the third day, being raised. Now, this is really the first time of several times where Jesus is going to speak candidly about who he is and what he's going to do and what's supposed to happen next. He's going to tell them later on many things exactly like this. But you see, Peter is having none of it. I will not stand for this. Now, perhaps Peter feels a little high on the hog because of what just happened. If you got the answer right, And the Christ, the Son of the living God, said to you, yes, that's exactly right. You're the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. If he said that to you, if he said that to me, we might feel a little bit high on the hog. And perhaps Peter is feeling a little bit like that from the previous passage. Or maybe he just thinks that it's his duty as the unappointed spokesperson of the group to come forward and and just correct Jesus in his understanding here of what he really doesn't know. And so he pulls Jesus aside. But what we know about Peter is that he at least feels that it's his responsibility to do so and to correct Jesus, and most of us probably would too. And so Peter hears Jesus forecast his trip to Jerusalem, and Jesus sounds pretty down about it. He's not very optimistic about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and Peter doesn't really like that. And so he hears Jesus Uh, the Christ, the Son of the living God, talk about being put to death, and that doesn't mesh with Peter's own view of the world and how things are supposed to go. Remember for Peter and the disciples, and even to some degree us, it's impossible to separate the Messiah as Savior from the Messiah as Jewish political king. It it doesn't make sense to separate them. For Peter and the disciples, to save the Jews would necessitate getting rid of all non-Jewish authority in the land. Getting rid of them, casting them out. This is the first time that Jesus has even begun to introduce to them the very notion that there could be some gap in time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming what we would call his first coming and his second coming. 
The, the time when he inaugurates or he begins the kingdom and when he consummates or completes the kingdom. This is the first time that they're beginning to feel some sort of notion that there's a gap in between those two things. A gap that we now know, sitting here as the church, has taken some 2,000 years up to this point. That kind of a gap. It's really the first time the disciples are hearing that there would be any sort of gap. For Jews, Jesus' first coming is thought of similar to the way we would think of his second coming. So imagine if Jesus came back and said to you, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again and then there's going to be some time go on. And you would think, what are you talking about? That can't happen. Because the way I'm thinking about the second coming is similar to the way the Jews are thinking about the first coming. And this is the first time they're being introduced to this gap. And so being generous to Peter, let's be just a little bit generous to him at this moment, although Jesus does call him Satan, so maybe not, but to be a little bit generous to him, he, he wants to be sure that he assures Jesus that I believe so strongly that you're the Messiah I would never let that happen. We would never let you be killed. Peter's even going to take up a sword <laughs> for this very reason. We could never let you be killed. No, no, Jesus, you're the, you're the Messiah. And I believe so strongly that you're the Messiah that you're going to conquer all these people out there that hate you and that think that you're not the Messiah. But Jesus rebukes him about as strongly as you can possibly rebuke anyone. And it seems that the rock in the previous paragraph has turned into the stumbling stone here for Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And rather than his mind being on Christ and his kingdom that he's establishing, his mind are on, is on what his conceptions of the Messiah should be. He should be a victorious ruler. He should establish his kingdom right here and right now. Die. He can't die. That's impossible. He's the Messiah. You see, Peter has already forgotten what Jesus just said about the church that he's going to establish. That the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In other words, the ones that believe like Peter that Christ is the Son of the living God, though they die, they will live the grave will cough them up. It cannot hold them. They will be physically resurrected from the grave. What Peter has missed is what Jesus just told him in verse 21. And be killed, and on the third day, the gates of the grave will not prevail against me. He missed that whole thing. Sailed right past it. Went right over his head. Peter has missed that God's plan is not instead of the grave. It is through the grave. Blowing it wide open. That's the plan. No one wants to die. Let's just make that disclaimer out there. None of us in this room wants to die at all. Peter is no exception to that. 
Peter is like anyone else. He wants to live forever, and here is the Messiah that he's following, and in Jesus, he believes this is the ticket. This is the end. In Jesus is the kingdom. Death makes absolutely no sense now that we have Jesus, the Messiah. But Jesus is about to startle his senses first by calling him Satan. That'll wake anybody up. And then second, by telling him that he has his mind on the things of man, which I take to mean that Peter wants to avoid death at all costs and establish a kingdom right here and now and have power and authority. But then third, Jesus basically is going to to tell them all, it's not just me that's going to the grave. You're going to go to the grave too. If you want to be my disciple, in fact, You have to follow my lead. If you want to be like me, if you too want to rise from the dead, you got to go where I'm going. You got to do what I'm doing. So Jesus is setting the example, and he's telling them that he's going to set the example for what the heart of discipleship really is. And there's a few things that Jesus mentions in 24 to 28 that I want to hone in on, and there's probably a million observations that we can make here about discipleship, but I want to look at just three of them. About the heart of discipleship is first marked by self-denial. The heart of discipleship is marked by self-denial. Look at verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The heart of discipleship is first and foremost marked by self-denial. There's not one person that wishes to follow Jesus who won't first have to deny himself. What does it mean to deny yourself? To quote Paul David Tripp here, he says, I must say no to selfish desires, wrong thoughts, dangerous emotions, the world's values, sin's temptations, and my desire to control what only God can rule. You can leave that quote up there until we get to the next point. There's a notion of easy believism in our culture and really in every culture. Easy believism is the idea that someone is truly saved if they merely profess their faith in Jesus, even if their lifestyle that they lead remains totally unconnected to what they've just professed. This version of salvation has grown in popularity in our country probably in the last about 100 years or so. And most of its proponents selectively quote Paul in Romans 10.9 and they say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No doubt that verse is true, but they never really stop to ask, hey, how do we know if someone really believes in their heart that, Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead? So easy, believe, easy believism takes their word, the word of the person, as the truest testimony of their heart. They said they believe, so they believe. They slap the label of Christian on them, throw them in the waters of baptism, and then don't disciple them because after all, they're bound for heaven at this point anyway. Give them the moniker, once saved, always saved. Send them out the door and tell them everyone, tell everyone around, hey guys, this is a Christian. 
They give them the license to go around saying, hey, guys, I'm a Christian now. Only through a marginal confession, getting wet, never living anywhere close to something that would resemble a disciple. To which the watching world looks at them and says, if that's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. But if you read the rest of Paul and the rest of James and the rest of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament and in fact the rest of the Bible, you'll see that belief in the heart is pretty well defined in these texts. There's fruit. Fruit of the testimony of the Spirit's work in someone, rejuvenating, life-giving work in someone's life. In other words, they begin to deny themselves. Well, wait a minute, you might say. If denying your oneself is saying no, as Paul Tripp says, to, to selfish desires, to wrong thoughts, to dangerous emotions, the world's values, sin's temptations, my desire to control what only God can rule, then I'm not sure I'm saved because I'm guilty of one, maybe all of those things every single day. Well, that's precisely the point, isn't it? My desire is completely opposite of that. Self-denial isn't something that I'm naturally capable of without God's supernatural work on my heart. It's the Spirit that produces in me the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. In fact, the Holy Spirit not only reveals the truth of Jesus Christ to a person, they profess faith in Christ, and the Spirit over time leads them to put to death all of those things that would that we think now might make us happy. All of those sins that we indulge in, or all of those things we buy, all of those things we reach out for, all of those things that are exactly the opposite of self-denial that we think would really make us happy. The Spirit leads us to kill those things. And what He does is truly shows us what makes it, what's really going to make us happy. What's ultimately going to give us pleasure, which are the things of God. Jesus isn't telling you to deny yourself so that you can just eat bran flakes and almond milk for the rest of your life. It's not to ruin your life in any way. But to make you some ascetic that sits in a corner, afraid to go out into the world. No, he's offering, what he's offering you is more pleasure than you can imagine, but it's not through the things that the flesh seeks out, but through the denial of those things. And the only way I can put those things to death is by the Spirit's work in me. It's a work that the Spirit produces in us over time. So the question is not, is this 100% true of me now? It's, is this becoming truer of me over time? Second thing I want you to see is that the heart of discipleship is marked by a willingness to die. Heart of discipleship is marked by a willingness to die. This is the second time this phrase, taking up the cross, has been mentioned by Jesus. He mentions it first in Matthew 10, 38. You can mark that down and look at it later. But Jesus says, whoever, he says there, whoever does not take his, uh, take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, the cross is a very clear, as we probably most of us know here, a very clear reference to the barbarous form of Roman execution known as crucifixion. 
And the idea of being crucified struck fear into everyone's heart. Jesus will tell them explicitly that he's going to be crucified. And he say, he'll say that many of the disciples will even be crucified. But all of them, whether crucified or not, must be ready and willing to give up their life. Literally. To die. Scottish missionary Stephen Neal once said about the early church... Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. In other words, it was normal. And in many places around the world, it still is normal. But isn't this the ultimate test of self-denial? There's no greater instinct than the preservation of your own life. Every single one of us has that within us. You and I will do almost anything, we'll eat almost anything, we'll drink almost anything to preserve our own life. And the testimony of Aaron Ralston is proof of that. We look at that and we think, wow, that's, that's horrible. And I don't know how I could possibly stomach that. But if you were in that situation, you would do the same thing. Because we have a natural instinct to preserve our own life. What if, then, your executioner was standing at the doorway on the date of your baptism. And he said to you, if you go public with your faith, I will execute you on the spot right here and now. Would you do it? Jesus is saying here, if you don't know, or if the answer is no, you're not my disciple. Think about that for just a second. If you're not ready and willing to face execution, you cannot be my disciple. Underneath this is Jesus' reminder to his disciples. Again, remember what I told you about the church that I'm going to build I said that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. If you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me for that. You're going to have to give up any illusion that your life is about living your best life now. And instead, you're going to have to live a life that's risky for the sake of the gospel. A life that is prioritizing the kingdom above all other needs. Doesn't that make sense of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6? Knowing that if you do this, there is a high likelihood, if you're risky for the gospel, there is a high likelihood that one day it's going to be your body up on that cross. My disciples... Jesus says, we'll find it a happy trade. But you're mean. You're, you're telling me that I get to trade my life, which all my senses are telling me to protect, to guard with everything I've got. You're telling me that I can give up that life. And if I give up that life and I die for the sake of the gospel, spend my life for the sake of the gospel, that in exchange, there's a resurrected life to come. Deal. Show me where to sign. 
Because implicit in that willingness of the disciple to give up his own life in exchange for a better life, there are several admissions that he's making in that process when he does that or she does that. First is that this life and all its treasures can never satisfy me. That's one admission that a disciple has to make in order to make that trade because it's a nonsensical trade otherwise. Why would I give up my life? All my senses are telling me to keep it. Why would I give it up? Well, one, I'm realizing that this life and all its treasures can never satisfy me. Second, I'm realizing that my death is a certainty. I'm going to die. There's no doubt about it. Third, that when I die, I'm dead now in my trespasses and sins and I'm separated from God. Which means fourth, because of my offense and because it's against an eternally holy God, I deserve an eternity and punishment in hell. So then fifth, the only way to salvation is by trusting in Christ's atoning work on my behalf. The disciples making all five of those confessions right there when he gives up his own life in exchange for a life to come. When he spends his own life for the kingdom's sake. When he places God's kingdom and God's righteousness above everything else, even his own personal needs. He's saying all of those things. He's becoming poor in spirit. The disciple is recognizing that I can't keep this life anyway. And the reality is that we are all pinned against the wall. But instead of it being just our arm, it's our entire soul is pinned against the wall and under the weight of of sin. So the question Jesus is posing to his disciples is what are you willing to lose in order to have salvation? What are you willing to lose in order to have it? Are you willing to lose your own life? The one that knows that he's trapped under the rock of sin and condemned to hell already, what is his life worth now anyway? He gladly trades it. Of course I'll lose this. Of course I'll admit to my need for a savior. Of course I'll confess my sin. Of course you have me dead to rights. But do you realize that there are so many people walking around our world right now thinking that they're in a, they're in a pretty good place and that they're really a pretty good person and you know what's going to happen when they die? God's going to be pretty impressed by who they are. And he may be even more impressed when he learns what little they had to work with. I mean, I don't have much, but you got to admit, it's pretty good, Right? Virtually the rest of the world is in that position. And they're being told from pulpits around the world, not least of which in this country, not come and die that you may live, but come and live your best life now. They've already bought into that philosophy. You don't have to sell a million books to tell them that. Just telling them what they already believe. Friend, the reality is that we're all in sin, all condemned to an eternity of hell. We need no other evidence. God needs no more evidence than our own life. We're all of us pinned against the wall. 
And the only way to escape is by complete and total surrender, dying to self kind of surrender, giving up your preferences, giving up your selfish desires, giving up what you think might be your career in the future, repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ's substitutionary atonement for your life and, and his plan ultimately then for where your career would go or where your life would go afterwards, how he wants to use you, what needs the kingdom has. And how God is fitting you for work in his kingdom. And then as a disciple whose soul is secure in Christ's kingdom, you can feel free to exhaust yourself to accomplish the will of God for your life. You can exhaust yourself. And we already know what that is. You can exhaust yourself in worship of God and making and maturing disciples for his glory. So you can spend your time doing, regardless of what job you have. It's the great missionary Jim Elliott that once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Irony of ironies, in order to save your life, you have to lose it. Third, the heart of discipleship is marked by belief in the life to come. By belief in life to come. Marked by belief in life to come. Look at 25 and following. For whoever would, lose his, would save his life will, will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The reason that you would be willing to turn away all the intrinsic benefits and give your life in pursuit of Christ is because of a deep-seated belief that there is greater riches in the life to come. That that's more fulfilling. That's the heart of the disciples' decision. I believe that a better life awaits when this life is over. That's what Peter is missing at this moment. That a better life waits through the grave than around it. To which Jesus says, I will repay each person according to what he has done. You're selling everything that you cannot keep. You're putting it down for that which you cannot lose. You're putting it down for reward in the life to come through the grave. But you notice that it's not blind trust. Jesus isn't asking for blind faith. He's not demanding blind faith. He's not saying, you know, just trust me on this. And then he's offering no proof to them. And for people that, that condemn Christianity because they say that it's a blind religion or a blind faith, have you read what we actually believe? We believe that a man 2,000 years ago literally got up from the grave and no less than 500 people witnessed it. They didn't talk to one person who witnessed it. They all witnessed it. And that the New Testament that they transcribed was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It could be refuted at that time, but it wasn't. All 500 are preaching the same gospel. And none of them are turning away from it because they know what they saw. Peter's standing in front of authorities threatening to be beaten And he says, 
if it's more right to listen to you or to God, you've got to decide that. But as for me, I can't keep quiet about what I've seen and heard. I've seen a guy get up from the grave. He's not asking for blind faith. He's telling them you're going to see it. In the very next passage, he's going to take Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and he's going to be transfigured before them, and it's going to be a sign of things to come. A sign of things to come in this very gospel. But then he's going to show them all that he's true and that what he's telling them is right by his resurrection. When he meets them in Galilee, when he says to them, go therefore and make disciples baptizing them of all nations or baptizing people of all nations. Judas is the obvious exception to this. He's going to hang himself before Jesus is ever crucified, much less resurrected. And then most of them are going to hang around to see the formulation of the church and this rapid expansion of the gospel and the exact opposite happened to the Jewish temple which comes to ruin in 70 AD. The point is that they're going to see proof of Christ's kingdom being established in the here and now. They're going to see visible, tangible proof that it's happening. They're going to see a resurrected person. And we're trusting in their testimony Sure. But as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. Go home and read 1 Corinthians 15. Just read the whole thing today. Just read the whole thing today. He's giving testimony of Christ's resurrection. He's saying that's the center of it. That's proof. That's evidence. What he's telling you is true. If he didn't rise from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if he did, there's life on the other side. And for the disciple, that life is worth giving up this one. That's what it's about. So then what do we do with that? Especially when the command of Christ to be his disciple is to come and die. I would challenge you parents, be patient with your children. Be patient with your children. They hear. They profess faith. They believe. Give them time to realize what they're professing faith in. They're going to go like this. They're going to go like this. Be patient with them. The call is to come and die It's going to be really difficult for a six-year-old to confess Christ and be ready to face his executioner. Be patient. Continue to teach. Continue to pray for them, but be patient. To the unbeliever, repent and believe. What we believe is not blind. A guy literally got up 2,000 years ago and it changes everything about everything. Have trouble believing in creation? Have trouble believing in Jonah? Have trouble believing in Noah? Well, I got news for you. Jesus rising from the dead usurps all of that. And if that's possible, the rest of it becomes viable at that point. Repent and believe because otherwise the rock is going to crush you for eternity. To the rest of us, give up serving yourself. 
Give up serving your own desires, your own self-serving attitude. You want marital help? All of marriage can totally improve by being less self-serving. Can it? Every marital problem I've ever had in my entire life of marriage could be solved if I would just humble myself. If I would die for my wife instead of insisting on my own way. All friendship drama goes away. If you push away accolades, push away joy, push away a lot of things in this life, all the rewards of this life, and you give of yourself instead. Spend your time developing a deep desire for the things to come. There is a phrase that people used a while back that was if you, that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It's hogwash. Don't ever say it. The reason is because if you're no earthly good, that's not heaven you have your mind on. In fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's going to tell us the very fact that after the grave, there is life to come in which there is reward means that good work on this side is valuable. If you don't have your mind on heaven on the other side, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Develop a deep sense of joy and longing for life to come. Read, think, think about what those pleasures and what that joy is actually going to bring to you. And don't give up anything in the meantime, or don't take anything in the meantime that would have you give that up. Set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on earth where moth and dust corrode. Find joy in his kingdom. Spend your time building that deep sense of longing for the return of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my ask of you through your word is to do a great work in the life of this church. That we would have a deep sense of longing for what is to come and that we would do anything that is required in the here and now that we not only may attain it, but that it may be a joyous time. So Father, we pray that you work in us a deep desire to live in accordance with your will. A deep desire to give up all of those things that so easily entangle us as mere trinkets that have no sustaining value. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.